Hey guys, Zach here, and I wanted to let you guys know that Fieldwork is brought to you in part by General Mills. General Mills is partnering with farmers and suppliers to advance regenerative ag practices on a million acres of farmland by 2030. Roll Tide. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Fieldwork Podcast. I'm Zach Johnson. I'm Mitch O'Hara. We've got our episode here today talking about watersheds. And as always on the Fieldwork Podcast, this is a podcast by farmers, for farmers, talking honestly and openly about the day-to-day realities you know, that as conventional farmers we're facing here to be able to implement conservation practices, but really it's just moving in the right direction. It's continuing to move the needle and implement more sustainable practices. Uh, but we've got to regenerate our system though first as we're working towards that and getting there. Yeah, so far we've had a lot of conversations about what farmers are doing themselves individually. We know as farmers, as Mitchell and I are, we're always trying to do better. We're always trying to improve not you know, not just yields and, and our own efficiencies on our farm, but also improve the impacts that we have environmentally. And so we're always kind of working amongst ourselves to try and do better. And we've had a lot of conversations about that. But today we're going to change that up a little bit and talk more about how farms are are working together to try to make a difference and, and really improve what they're doing together. Well, I think this is an interesting topic, you know, that as farmers, a lot of times, you know, we can be out there kind of on our own. And as individual business owners, and really we are entrepreneurs, um, we want to do things on our own terms. You know, we want to be able to be our own boss and uh, farm the way that we want to farm. I've talked about in my neck of the woods of Washington County, Iowa, that there's kind of a conservation culture there. I don't know how that really came about. I don't know how that happened. You know, I think it just kind of happened over time. It wasn't really set. Somebody set out to say, hey, we're going to implement a conservation culture like what maybe has happened in places like Coffee County, Tennessee. Um, so now it's now it's can we have a better conversation as working as groups, maybe at a watershed level. We have some really exciting guests uh, joining us via Skype here today, Zach. Yeah, today we are joined by Ray Gasser and Liz Haney. Ray is a farmer from Iowa and a past president of the National Soybean Association. Ray, how are you doing today? Yeah, this is Ray, doing fine. Thanks for the opportunity. Then we uh, we have Liz Haney with us too. She's She enjoys the sunshine all the time down in Texas. She's a research scientist with Texas A&M. Liz, thanks a lot for being on with us here today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so Ray, personally on your farm, um, conservation is, is a big part of what you do. You know, as you said, farmers want to leave a positive legacy. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've done in the past and and really talk about the things you've done on your farm when it comes to conservation? Yes. Uh, so my wife, Elaine, and I started our farm here in southwest Iowa pretty much from scratch, you know, and, and uh, having grown up on a very small farm in Indiana that didn't really have any topsoil, you know, I, I really appreciate all the good soil that we have here in Iowa and, and where we live here. And so it's always been a goal of, of Elaine and I and, and now our son, Chris, who farms with us, you know, to take care of the land and, and make it as 
uh, productive as possible and, and, you know, making sure that we keep that soil in place that we sequester those nutrients. So we've are, you know, our, we have a 40 year history of building terraces and waterways. Uh, we've been uh, about uh, 30 years, hundred uh, percent no-till. And since 2010, uh, we started growing cover crops. We started out at a couple hundred acres. Uh, we've been the last five years between 2,500 and 3,000 acres. We farm about uh, close to 6,000 acres total. Our goal is to be 100% cover crops. Um, conservation is important to us and, and leaving that positive legacy you know, for our next generations is really important to us. So when we talk about changing practices and, and doing these different things, really the, the goal, the the high-level goal to all of this is is trying to get a large amount of farmers on board because as a farmer, you know, if, if you're if you're one farmer trying to do your thing, at times it can feel like uh like you're not making a huge difference as a singular farmer out there. Yeah. So how do we get farmers to work together and and make an impact as as really as farmers and not just as individual farmers but as a group how do we how do we sort of change this system on a on a large scale a watershed approach is probably a good approach to to build the uh, the research to build the confidence in farmers uh, and and find those farmers in those watersheds who are supportive and and willing to take a look at at practices that conserve our resources and sequester our nutrients and those kind of things. So I think the watershed approach is is, is really important. You know, there are about 1,600 uh, Huck 12 watersheds in Iowa. Uh, if we had a plan for each one, I think, and, and found uh, one or two farmers in, in each watershed, uh, that would be a big plus in, in moving and in creating that movement that I talk about. The other thing is, you know, that's going to take money. You know, it's going to take a lot of money to do those kind of things. And, you know, and Iowa, we think it's four to eight billion dollars. That's billion dollars in Iowa to move that forward. So we need a, a, a support and a funding mechanism to uh, to get that, make that happen. And, and uh, I'm strongly supporting the Iowa's uh, water, land, and legacy uh, program. It's it's a it's a sales tax of three eighths of a cent uh, that would uh, would help with water quality and and to help with those practices around the state. And I, I think it's it's a way to build that funding and and from the surveys, uh, it was supported by sixty some percent in two thousand and ten from from our from our voters in Iowa. We just haven't gotten the legislation moved forward. And all the same, all the surveys say that there's lots of support out there, about sixty nine percent to do I will. So we need to do that. And those funding resources are what has made the Chesapeake Bay successful. So we need to see how, uh, you know, we need to learn from what they've done over there. You said this was a $4 billion project in Iowa? Yeah, it's at least $4 billion. That's the minimum to do the cover crops, to do the field, edge of field practices like bioreactors, like saturated buffers, you know, field borders and, you know, uh, borders along streams. It's it's 4 to $8 billion. Wow. Yeah, especially some of that. So, uh, Liz, would love to hear some of your thoughts on the logistic side 
of implementing conservation, especially when it comes to a very broad scale? Right. So we study how current farming practices and conservation practices are affecting the landscape at a large river basin or watershed scale. And um, we can, through our computer model, we can logistically see the effects on the environment of, say, implementing 100% cover crops in Maryland or implementing more cover crops in Texas, and also hopefully in the future incorporate some economic data into that so that people might feel a little more comfortable about changing or seeing what might work in their area and what doesn't and how that has an effect on the watershed as a whole. So right now we have about 41,000 survey data points where farmers have gone in and said what they're doing Um, what conservation practices that they're implementing right now. And a large majority of that is terraces, grass waterways, filter strips, buffer strips, or some combination thereof of those things. Over the past, I'd say, 10 years, we've added a lot more um, cover crop rotations. So far in the model, it's just been um, single species cover crop rotations. So what do your models actually tell us about the impact of, of things like no-till and cover crops and some of those conservation practices? What, what are they telling us about the impacts of those? Well, overall, just based on the survey data as compared to if there was a no-practice scenario where nobody was doing conservation agriculture, uh, the difference in loadings can be anywhere from 40% to 75% reduction in sediment, phosphorus, and nitrogen. So that's what well, you're looking but, at, really, is, is looking mm-hmm. at what is going into the water when it comes down to sediment, nitrogen, phosphorus. Correct. Okay, cool. Yes. Um, in the Chesapeake Bay region, for example, they simulated what would happen if they um, did cover crops on 100% of the available cropland and then figured out what the further reduction would be in sediment. And they found that, say, sediment loss would be further reduced by 60%. Nitrogen loss would be further reduced by 20%. And phosphorus loss would be further reduced by around 30%. So through the model, we can see, well, oh, if everybody starts doing this, you know, this is what we can expect. Ray, you've been involved with uh, a lot of different organizations, as we mentioned, Iowa National Soybean. Um, my understanding is you've been involved with 4-H as well. How do we get organizations like that to work together with other organizations to really try to implement some of these things on a, on a broader scale like we're talking about today? Yeah, yeah, and and you touched on something that's somewhat frustrating to me because, you know, there are so many entities and organizations and activities going on for water quality, for soil health, for, you know, the conservation practices to uh, to uh, do the nutrient reduction strategies. And, and we're not we're not talking with each other nearly as well as we should. I, that's one of, one of our efforts in Iowa with the nutrient reduction strategy at the Iowa level is to bring as many entities as possible together for at least one meeting a year to share what's going on. And, and hopefully we can blend uh, what we've learned together to, to, to make things happen more quickly. You know, uh, I, I still come back to, and, and one of the, and the main thing that I'm, focusing on 
uh, is is a funding mechanism to help make that happen because we do have to develop those watershed plans, I believe, to really begin that start. And it, and I don't think it's that hard for our organizations, our corn organizations, our soybeans, our pork, poultry, and beef organizations and Farm Bureau in Iowa to find one or two people who, who will be leaders in a watershed uh, to to help uh, do the demonstrations and do the testing to build that confidence for the rest of the farmers in those watersheds. Uh, we have to start from the bottom and move our way up, but we have to have a funding mechanism. Yeah, and, and we have to be unified. You know, you, you talked about the, the different groups and, and working together. I think it, it kind of stirred a little thought in me that I, that I knew but hadn't really thought of that well, that there's there's so many different organizations and consortiums that are trying to make something happen kind of all by themselves really and and what right now we've got so many different people coming coming into this trying to do something but really is the organization there to to really just make it happen and and we're so we're so split miscombobulated apart. still yeah, like right. there's not there's not much consistency to any of this in some of this there's a lot of development I think that needs to happen, you know, that it's fostering a conversation was a recurring thing. It's figuring out with data what's going to work and where. So, um, Liz, we can start with you. How do we keep this conversation going and get more information about some of the things that you guys are working on? Well, I sure would love it if people have long-term cover crop data and biomass data to, um, get with me and and help me create this giant database. And so far, the people that I've talked to have been very excited that we're going to be using their local studies at a national scale, at a watershed scale, so that we can simulate this for everybody to see um, instead of it just being, you know, Coffee County or a county in Montana, we can use this data all together and show nationally how it's going to change the Mississippi, you know, river basin, how it's going to change things in the West. And um, people can contact me. You can find me on the Texas AgriLife Blackland Research Center website if they would like to share data with me or hear about any of the data that I've been collecting so far. And I think we have to start there. Yeah. How do we organize amongst each other uh, to, to try and, and, and work towards common goals? Uh, Ray, do you, have, do you have anything in closing that you'd like to say on it? Uh, just, uh, you know, from the farmer level, you know, we, we need to have, as we look at this and we move forward, we need to have that can-do attitude, you know, not, not right off the bat say, oh, it won't work for me. You know, I think, I think people need to try it, farmers and landowners both. You know, have that can-do attitude, you know, g- give it a test, do it at a small scale, find out what works on your farm, because every farm, every watershed is, is a little bit different. And, and, you know, the same practices won't work everywhere, but you need to make it a priority you know if we don't we will be regulated at the farm level and and that's the that's very scary to me that is definitely why zach and i really enjoy having this conversation because neither one of us want to have regulations either but i think we know that we've got to do things better we've got to move in the right direction and hopefully today this conversation helped to spark your thought process on how do you work with some other local leaders how do you foster this conversation and be the change, I suppose, you know, start, 
start things moving in the right direction. And it doesn't have to be a big leap. You don't have to jump all the way into it like Ray has on his farm. But if you can move, then you can eventually it'll snowball. Yeah. But we didn't yeah, we didn't jump into it all at once. We started out with two hundred acres, you know. So so that was like a, a small percentage of, of what we farm. But we learned as we went and every year we grew a little bit more, you know, and uh found out what works and, and we've learned that if we grow our own seed and, and we put it out at the right time, uh it can actually be a money uh maker for us versus a, an expense. Well we like that. We do. <laughs> we well, love guys, that. Yeah. Well, it's been another good conversation here. Thank you to our guests for joining us via Skype. Yeah. A lot of really good stuff here, Zach. So we're going to continue this conversation on making changes at scale. I'm actually not in the studio for this part. I'm out on my farm, so I don't have my bendy microphone with me today. I'm talking now to Greg Bohr from an organization called the Environmental Initiative. It's based in Minneapolis. Greg, can you go ahead and give me a quick rundown and tell me exactly what does Environmental Initiative do? Yeah, I'd be happy to, and, uh, and thanks for having me on. So Environmental Initiative, we're about 26, 27 years old. Uh, we're a Minnesota-based nonprofit that brings together partners to uh, form and act on solutions that will benefit Minnesota's environment. So my particular work is in agriculture, but we also work in clean air, we work in business sustainability, we do a lot of different things bringing together nonprofits, uh, government, industry, and others to help push those solutions forward. I understand that you have some programs in place where you're actually getting lots of people together in a watershed to make changes. That includes farmers and others, of course. Can you give me an example uh, what are some of these programs, uh, what are they, and how might these work? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we do work in watersheds or in a particular local area, and you're right that we, it's not just farmers. Uh, farmers are who we serve and who we rely on to implement the practices that will make a difference in our environment and soil health and water resources, but it's a much bigger ecosystem than just the farmer, right? The farmer is surrounded by a group of people who help them implement practices, whether it's nutrient management from their ag retailer or whether it's, you know, conservation programs from the local soil and water conservation district. And so we bring in different partnerships in different areas of the state. We're bringing together uh, folks like the agricultural retailer or the input suppliers and technology providers like Atlanta Lakes or even the food company that has an interest in that watershed like uh, Hormel Foods in the Cedar River watershed in southern Minnesota. Uh, soil and water conservation districts, and also the Minnesota Department of Agriculture, because they have a stake in the broader picture of uh, sustainability and natural resources in Minnesota. So the idea is that all those folks work together, and we are the organizer and a bit of the glue that puts it, to, it together into an actual partnership. Yeah, I mean, when I think of it, it makes good sense to me as far as why you would concentrate the efforts that way. Can you give me some examples of how do you really make sure that the programs are a successful program that really gets towards the idea of what it is you're trying to achieve versus just being fluff that ends up, you know, being something that's nice to talk about, but it doesn't really achieve anything. Yeah, that's a great question and something that we uh, always with, uh, you know, the different partnerships that we have, we, we struggle with and we try to make it effective because, you know, the, the saying is if you want to 
you know, go fast, go alone. If you want to get something done, go together. Uh, and so we go together. And that means that sometimes, you know, if we've been only working for six months or something like that, it's hard to be able to say, oh, yes, this many tons of soil preserved or this many pounds of, uh, you know, nitrogen avoided out of the waters. But with that, what we're trying to do is actually more of a systemic shift. It's a long-term play with these partnerships uh, in areas where you know private industry and government may not have been working together before this. This is a way to embed sustainability just in the way that folks are working day to day. So uh, success in, in some sense is just engagement of the full system in sustainability principles and focused on soil health and, and the environmental outcomes that everybody, no matter what part of the system you're coming from, wants to see. Great way to look at it, I think. Uh, I understand you're also involved in some efforts to make crop insurance work a little bit differently around sustainable practices and maybe work a little bit more in the farmer's favor. Can you tell me about that? Because I imagine that's got to be a, a pretty big challenge in and of itself. So what can you tell me about those efforts? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, so this is a really exciting thing that actually came out of a program in Iowa. Uh, they were the first to start it up. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship uh, talked to the uh, the risk management agency and said at the federal level and said, hey, what if we tried to do something around crop insurance? And there was a lot of other nonprofits and, and partners involved in that. And, you know, around the idea of how can we make sure that farmers know that, one, crop insurance and cover crops can play together. A lot of farmers believe that cover crops and crop insurance don't work together because it is essentially it's another crop. And so you're planting something that requires moisture, requires the same inputs as a regular crop. And in some cases, you're planting that, a lot of places, you're planting it into one of the crops. So, and also maybe then terminating it before or after you plant your actual you know, crop that you're going to harvest. So, you know, what crop insurance wants to make sure that you are doing the best you possibly can to raise the crop so that your, your regular crop that you're going to harvest so that you don't end up, uh, you know, having a, a failed crop based on one of the things that you did. And so a lot of farmers took that signal to mean that, oh, if you try to do something different or innovative with cover crops, it's going to invalidate your crop insurance plan. And, and for that, for a lot of farmers, that's a, that's a risk that they can't, cannot take. And so what if we, this is the state of Iowa saying, what if we actually provided incentives and you delivered them through the, your uh, premiums? So the crop insurance and premiums that farmers have to pay, what if there was a discount actually on those premiums provided by the state for planting cover crops that aren't being subsidized by some other program? You mentioned the state of Iowa being proactive in trying to get crop insurance and cover crops to play well together. Are there other efforts from other states, or how widespread is that? Other states are actually trying this as well. Um, there's an effort in Illinois that just got included in the budget, so they now have some funds. Uh, we are working with a group of partners in Minnesota to design, uh, to take what, they've, what both of those states have done, uh, think about how we want to adapt it to a different climate, a different farming system up here in, uh, in a very cold state. That's a difficult one because it always comes back to the fact that anytime you change practices, there's labor involved, there's time involved, there might be machinery involved, and then you have to hope that those things play in correctly with whatever weather situation you have going on from year to year to year. And so it's not a, a simple change to just switch over to some of these practices. But I think, I think as we go, we're going to learn a lot more about it. I think there's going to be some really interesting stuff that happens. I think we're in the process of trying to figure out how exactly we can take these things like cover crops, 
and work them into our individual operations because it has to be that way on an individual basis because everyone's farm is different. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, we all want clean water, right? It's, it's just figuring out how to do those things while still maintaining our individual operations. Yeah, and I just I want to point out and build off of your statement about the you know every farm is different every every management change is it involves a risk and it's different for every farmer because of different setups, and that's a philosophy that we have across all our programs uh, that we should be serving the farmer in the way that the best farmer can best be served and they know they know what they want to do and they know where they want to take their farm. Um, that's a philosophy that we have uh, running through all our, our programs. And we actually are bringing that to a new partnership uh, that we've taken on in the last couple months. And that is the Midwest Row Crop Collaborative, which is a, uh, a collaborative with uh, nine of the leading food and agriculture companies in the, uh, in the United States, I'll say world, because some of them are based overseas. Um, but uh, them and three other leading non-governmental organizations and nonprofits working in the space, uh, the Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife Fund, and the Environmental Defense Fund. And it's focused on sustainability across acres, row crop acres in the Midwest, uh, the Mississippi River Basin in particular, and the Okalala Aquifer. And we're really excited about this. This is, a, this is coming to us uh, in a new way. This is an existing partnership that came to us and said, would you take it on? We said, that sounds like a lot of fun. And so we, we did, and we've been in it for a few months. And we're in the process of figuring out how do we enable uh, collaboration amongst these different partners? How can we, again, provide a flexible framework that it leverages everybody's uh, skills and assets to the best potential possible in helping to enhance the sustainability of acres across the Midwest. So we're really excited about that. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to get you into too much detail on it because it's very new for us and we're just getting into the program. Uh, but that is a, a great expansion of our work and our philosophy as well. Lastly here, I'm kind of interested to hear your take on this. We've all got our own opinions on it, but can you talk a little bit about why it's important to try to affect change at a larger scale beyond just the individual farms? You know, why do we have to take a look at it on a much grander scale? It's, you know, scale is what we eventually, everybody bumps up against, right? Like it's the big thing. It's not just a watershed, it's the Mississippi River watershed. You know, it's, it's huge, uh, the, the scope of what you, you need to do to affect change. And while it's great that we work in these individual watersheds with local partners who are extremely engaged and extremely active in making changes that they are, you know, for their neighbors, for their communities, how do you get to scale? And that is a tough question that everybody wrestles with in, in this space. But what our hope is, is that by demonstrating out a different way of working together, because again, these, these partners, even though they exist together in a, in a watershed, they don't necessarily have relationships with each other. Uh, and this the systemic change that we're hoping to go for is that everyone who touches a farmer in, in a particular watershed, not physically, but actually like touches their, their farming operation, uh, is uh, helping that farmer to make changes that both will benefit them in terms of profit and in terms of the uh, sustainability of the natural resources that farm depends on and the communities that that farm sits in depends on. Uh, and so what we're hoping to do is essentially demonstrate and spread a different way of doing business uh, that can be brought to scale because 
Uh, a lot of these businesses, like Land O'Lakes would be a good example, they, ha- they touch 50% of the corn acres in the United States with their products. And so there's an opportunity to work with some of these partners to take what we've learned and apply them across the, the system. This has been a really interesting conversation, some really honorable work that I think you guys are doing. I wish you the best of luck with it. Again, this is Greg Bohr. We've been talking to you from the Environmental Initiative. Thank you very much for joining us today, Greg. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, and that's all the time we have for Fieldwork today. So thank you to all the people who help make this Fieldwork podcast possible. They would be Amy Scotchless-Cole, Annie Baxter, Lauren Humpert, Todd Melby, Laura Doherty, and Dan Ackerman. Our theme music is written and performed by Johnny Vince Evans. If you'd like to see more, you can go to fieldworktalk.org to learn a little bit more about what we've going on, got going on here with the podcast. Uh, we are also at Fieldwork Talk on Facebook and Twitter as well. As you're listening to this too, be sure to subscribe. Then it'll download for you and you can stay up to date on what's going on on the Fieldwork Podcast. Be sure to review and uh, give us a bunch of stars. Yeah, give us give us a really good rating that helps other people to make sure they find this podcast. And helps you help us to get to buying a helicopter. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> That's what it's all about. So we can go to Texas and we can film from there with Liz. But anyway, thanks a lot, everybody. And stay tuned for future episodes of the Fieldwork Podcast. <laughs>